This podcast is sponsored by Great White Hot Sauce. It's a small batch, handmade hot sauce, made specially for you. So if you like hot sauce, you'll love Great White Hot Sauce. It's the hot sauce that bites back. Find it at www.trygreatwhite.com. Well, here we are. Episode 70. A little different on this episode. Pre-recorded. Yeah. No live stream tonight. So what you get is what you hear. I'm still not editing just because it's a solo pre-recorded show. And I did say solo. We're going to talk about some did you know, some trivia, just a bunch of good stuff. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have... The KOFB Studio presents Milk Crates and Turntables, a music discussion podcast hosted by Scott McLean. Now, let's talk music. Enjoy the show. Thank you, Amanda, for that wonderful introduction as usual. Welcome to the podcast. You know the name, so I'm not going to say it. Oh, if you don't know the name, it's Milk Crates and Turntables, a music discussion podcast. I haven't said that in a long time. Well, flying solo tonight, doing something a little different. This isn't live. Yeah. It's my first pre-recorded podcast episode. You know, usually we we just wing it. Technical difficulties. See that? Technical difficulties in all. This isn't going to be edited. <laughs> I never. All right. I can't say never. I very rarely edit these things. It's organic. And that won't get edited out. Anyways. Yeah, it's pre-recorded. I'm going to uh, fly in solo. I haven't done this in a while. Did you know? little trivia. I'm going to talk about names, real names. And uh, some did you knows. Maybe a bunch of did you knows. Like, for instance, let's see. What's the meaning behind the name the E Street Band? Do you know it? Have you heard about it? Has anyone ever said anything about it? I don't know, but I'm going to tell you right now. So as the story goes, Bruce Springsteen played in a lot of bands. Bands like Steel Mill and Dr. Zoom and Sonic Boom. But when he signed his record contract, he did it as a solo artist. And when he went out on tour behind Greetings from Asbury Park, New Jersey, 
He had a five. He had five guys backing him up. They didn't even have a name. On some of the 1974 concert posters, the band behind him was billed. It, well, it was just billed as Bruce Springsteen and band. As original keyboardist Dave Sankius remembered, said we needed a name. On a long drive back from a show, the group brainstormed some names, and they did it for hours without anything clicking. But by the time they got back to the Jersey Shore, it was daylight. They were headed for the house of Sankius' family, where the band sometimes practiced. The address, 1105 E Street, Belmont, New Jersey. Springsteen saw the sign, started saying it over and over, E Street, E Street, E Street, E Street Band. Yeah. That Belmont neighborhood also had another name that Springsteen made famous. A nearby cross street was called, do you know it? 10th Avenue. Later, be, later to be known for its freeze-outs, which he was asked one time during an interview, what does 10th Avenue, see, the fuck? <laughs> what does 10th Avenue freeze-out mean? Said doesn't mean anything. Just sounds good. So there you have it. Yeah. That's where the E Street Band name came from. Now, for you hip-hop fans, let's say 90s hip-hop and beyond. You had the rapper DMX. Gonna give it to you. Gonna give it to you. You know, if you're a rap star. I didn't. I don't know if I sounded like him, but I give you, give you a little tune-up. But what does DMX stand for? Some said Doc Man X or Demutant Xavier. But in all actuality, his real name was Earl Simmons. Because he had a real name. No one's going to name their kid DMX. Well, I don't know. Didn't, uh, what's his name? Guy from Tesla, Elon Musk. He named his kid some crazy stuff. But around the age of 16, when he decided he wanted to beatbox and be a rapper, he was living at a group home at the time. Yeah, he had a rough childhood. He decided he needed a new name. So he found it on the Oberheim DMX drum machine. He said, since I felt I was nice by, uh, I felt nice by the beats, so I took it. It was strong, powerful. I liked the three letters and thought it would be cool to make them stand for something different. I was no longer Earl Simmons or even Crazy Earl. I was DMX. But originally it was DMX, the beatbox enforcer. Kind of glad he got rid of that one. But he's DMX. Rest in peace. All right. 
Where did Pearl Jam get their name? Do you know? Well, let me tell you. There's a lot of misinformation on this. Most of it is uh, happily spread by the band. Uh, For example, uh, despite Eddie Vedder's repeated claims, he did not have a great-grandmother named Pearl who married a Native American and cooked up jam with peyote as an ingredient, although he'd like you to believe that. That's kind of stupid if anyone believed that one. And although the, band, although the band was originally named Mookie Blaylock, I think a lot of us know that, after the NBA uh, uh, point guard, Pearl Jam was not his nickname. They actually changed their name from Mookie Blaylock to avoid legal problems. But the title of their debut album, 10, just happened to be Mookie Blaylock's jersey number, if you didn't know that. The band also doesn't have, uh, doesn't seem to have intended their name to be referred to as, uh, as semen. It's not, it's not what it is. I have heard that one. That's what Pearl Jam represented, the name. So why'd they pick it? They just like the word Pearl. It's surface slang for subner- sub- what the fuck? submerging the nose of, the, of your board. Uh, into the water. It's the title of a good Janis Joplin record. Eh. Eh. It was the nickname of basketball great Earl Monroe. And Eddie Vedder did have a cool great-grandmother named Pearl. So he was half telling the truth. It was a half-truth. She didn't, she didn't marry a Native American dude. But she did marry a circus contortionist. <laughs> so a Pearl Jam might be a Monroe slam dunk, or as Veta said, he prefers to think of it as the creative conflict that turns the grain of sand in an oyster into a jewel. Uh, so in other words, we don't know where the fuck the name came from. I guess that's that. All right. Have you ever wondered how Weezer got their name? For all you Weezer fans out there? Well, a quick history of the names that Rivers Cuomo has used for his bands. His high school metal act was called Avant Garde. They moved to Los Angeles and then changed their name to Zoom rejecting the options of prong and power chicken. Good move. After they broke up, Cuomo joined 60 Wrong Sausages, which in early 1992 evolved into a nameless quartet. While they wrote songs and rehearsed, the group considered Meathead, Outhouse, Hummingbird, The Big Jones, and This Niblet. Then came their break. Keanu Reeves' band, Dogstar, decided to play an impromptu gig at Raji's Bar in Rib Shack on Hollywood Boulevard. An opening band was needed that night. Cuomo's group 
locked out into the show, but needed a real name. Cuomo nominated Weezer, a nickname given to him when he was a kid by other children who were teasing him about his, yes, you guessed it, asthma. The band had a long meeting, kicked around many more names, but nobody could come up with anything better, and Cuomo stuck to his guns. Or, rather, his inhaler. <laughs> Uh-oh. All right, I gave, I gave, I gave myself that one. <laughs> that was pretty good, though. All right. Where did Velvet Revolver get their name? Weren't they called The Project at one time? I think real briefly. I think they were also known as Reloaded. Well, they really didn't decide on a name until the last possible moment. In fact, their songs in Hulk and The Italian Job are credited to Scott Whedon slash Duff McKagan, Matt Sorum, and Dave Kushner, which is, that's a mouthful. So uh, I guess uh, coming up with a name, they were, they were dreading it. They just couldn't come up with anything. Duff McKagan said, we were like, we have to come up with a fucking name. After seeing the movie financed by Revolution Studios, Slash suggested Revolver. And the band liked it because of the Beatles reference, right? I think you got that. And then he did a Google search on Revolver. And there was like a thousand bands. So that was impossible. Then they started toying with different versions. And Weedland came up with Black Velvet Revolver. Which was deemed too close in cadence to Stone Temple Pilots. Black Velvet Revolver. Stone Temple Pilots. Right? So, uh... It did, it, they did like it. But no one in the band realized that there was also a, a firearm overlap in the names Guns N' Roses and Velvet Revolver until it was too late. Get it? Guns N' Roses, Velvet Revolver. So uh, that's how they got their name. Let's do it. Is it true? Is it true that in college, some friends of James Taylor's flew his girlfriend in for a surprise, but her plane crashed, which is what Fire and Rain is based on? What do you think? Any truth to that story? Well, only a little. Fire and Rain was inspired by the death of a female friend of James Taylor's, Susie Schnur. But Taylor never went to college. Schnur wasn't a romantic interest, and tragically, Schnur committed suicide. Taylor's friends didn't tell him she had died until six months after, after she died because they didn't want to rattle him while he was recording Sweet Baby James. Hence the song's line, They let me know you were gone. 
He wrote that verse, first verse on Fire and Rain in his basement apartment in London, and the second verse in a New York City hospital where he was hospitalized because of his heroin addiction, and the third verse in a Massachusetts psychiatric clinic. Yep. Let's see. Is it true that Jeff Porcaro, former drummer for Toto, accidentally died in a tragic gardening accident a la Spinal Tap? Well, a little bit. Porcaro, who was also a top studio drummer with such credits as Staley Dan, Michael Jackson, Bruce Springsteen, killed over suddenly on August 5th, 1992, when he was just 38 years old. The initial report from the Toto's record label, from Toto's record label, was that Porcaro had expired because of an allergic reaction to pesticide while spraying his garden, which bizarrely would have been indeed a tragic gardening accident. A month later, however, the coroner's report revealed that there was no pesticide in his bloodstream. The cause was actually a heart attack due to hardened arteries and from his extensive use of cocaine, cocaina. This, of course, provokes further questions. What sick minds cooked up the spinal tap alibi for Pocaro's death? And why didn't they claim instead that he had just spontaneously combusted or choked on somebody else's vomit? I mean, that was a pretty intricate story. Eh. But it, alas, it wasn't true. But he did die in his garden. Cocaina. Ah, <laughs> uh, let's see. Is it true that the former bassist of Iron Butterfly was an innovative scientist was killed after finding out in his research that objects could go faster than light. Seems pretty bizarre. Let's see. Philip Taylor Kramer was born in 1952, joined an Iron Butterfly reunion in 1974, and recorded two forgotten albums with the band whose Inagata Davida heyday was some years behind them by then. When the group broke up again in 77, he got an engineering degree, worked on the MX missile, and later specialized in video compression. In early 1995, Kramer said that he developed a formula for instantaneous transmission of matter, which if you were a Star Trek fan, that would get you a little excited, right? <laughs> you might want to consider his claim with some skepticism, though. Around the same time, he had also said the Earth was about to be consumed by a supernova and that his wife was actually Mother Earth. <laughs> okay. On February 12th, February 12th, February 12th, I pronounce it the way it's spelled. <laughs> Kramer called 911 
from Los Angeles International Airport, told the operator he was going to kill himself and that OJ is innocent and then vanished. His disappearance fueled talk of foul play or alien abduction until 1999 when hikers found Kramer's body at the bottom of a 200-foot ravine in Malibu, California. The evidence suggested that Kramer had become mentally unbalanced and tragically had made good on his threats of suicide. A tortured soul. Did one of the temptations die in a crack house? No. He overdosed at the crack house, but died in the hospital. That's a little eh, semantics. It's semantics. On June 1st, 1991, three weeks after a Temptations reunion tour, Lead singer David Ruffin reportedly smoked, get this, 10 vials of crack. Oh, good Lord. Talk about a tolerance. Sheesh, well, it was the 10th one that did him in, evidently. So he had the tolerance for nine vials of crack. Holy shit. And then he passed out, right, in a limousine... (laughs) Dropped him off at the hospital at the University of Pennsylvania. The driver identified his passenger and drove away without giving his own name. An hour later, Ruffin died. He had been wearing a money belt containing $40,000, which was stolen sometime during the night and never recovered. Well, yeah. Since Ruffin died broke, Michael Jackson paid for his funeral. Good on you, Michael. Good on you. Before Ty Longley of Great White, did any rock stars die on stage? The answer? Yes. I, you have to think so, right? Although this isn't like an occupational hazard for musicians, drugs and traveling and small airplanes and buses, you know, it can take its toll. But among the notables who had fatal heart attacks in front of the live crowds, blues legend Johnny Guitar Watson. Love Johnny Guitar Watson. Superman lover. Yeah. Country Dick Montana of the Beat Farmers. Novelty artist Tiny Tim. British skinhead Scar Star Judge Dredd. And Mark Sandman of Morphine. Some people think Jackie Wilson died on stage after his heart attack. In fact, he survived for eight more years although he spent them in a coma. Again, semantics? I don't know. Yeah. Eight years in a coma. Jesus. In addition, Les Harvey, guitarist for the Scottish soul band Stone the Crows, 
Well, he was electrocuted on stage in 1972. Yeah. But punk rocket Gigi Allen, who spent most of his career threatening to commit suicide on stage, actually died in a New York City apartment of heroin overdose. So, Gigi couldn't do it. But he did everything else. Dude was out of control. Jesus. Did Donnie Hathaway actually commit suicide? Well, you know, Hathaway was a soul singer, songwriter, best for, known for his duets with Roberta Flack. With their hit cover of James Taylor's You've Got a Friend and led them actually to do two albums together. Tragically, on January 13th, 1979, he fell to his death from the 15th floor of the Essex House Hotel. There was no note, meaning nobody will ever know for sure what thoughts were going through Hathaway's head. But he had been hospitalized for depression. Coroner ruled his death a suicide. Jesse Jackson delivered the the eulogy at Hathaway's funeral and noting Hathaway had been dressed for the New York winter in a coat and scarf, intended that no one gets bundled up to just jump out a window. Further evidence suggesting the fall was accidental, Hathaway had been cheerful earlier in the same day while in the studio with Flack. Furthermore, he was in the habit of leaning out of the windows of his 17th floor apartment in Chicago, preaching and singing to passerbys on the street. Since he had been tossed out of another hotel by the same hap for the same habit, it seems possible that it was a repeat of that dangerous behavior that led him to his untimely plummet. Hmm. Let's see. What else do we have here? Let's see. Did Robert Johnson sell his soul to the devil? Isn't that the age-old question? Some questions are purely theological. Can one actually barter one's soul to the devil for guitar lessons? If so, do the infernal exchange rates fluctuate? Can Joe Satriani ask for a refund? So when we consider the story of legendary bluesman Robert Johnson, 1911 to 1938, it's more useful to ask whether Johnson believed he made such a deal or whether he wanted other people to think he had. You won't find much evidence of a supernatural bargain in his music, although Johnson recorded a few songs with satanic references, including the memorable, atypical Hellhound on My Trail. Other contemporary blues singers such as Bessie Smith, sang many more such numbers without people concluding they'd encountered Satan at the metaphysical swap meet. Scholars have recently pinpointed the origin of the myth, which started decades after Johnson's death. In a 1965 interview, blues guitarist Sunhouse told the story of how he knew Johnson when he was a good harmonica, good harmonica player, 
but a terrible guitarist. Between House's sets at the juke joints, Johnson would borrow House's guitar and drive the people nuts. The next time House saw Johnson, he was much better. As House told the story, the improvement took only six months, although later research has revealed it had to be at least two or three times that long. When House's tale was reprinted a year later, a postscript, probably inaccurate, had been appended, quoting House as saying that Johnson made a deal with the devil. From there, the tale kept getting improved, as they always do, until the Faustian bargain became an indelible part of Johnson's image. But the people who actually knew Johnson in the 30s, such as his frequent traveling companion Johnny Shines, scoffed at the notion that Johnson had sold his soul or even suggested he had. He said he never told me that lie. Nope. Shines said that if he would have, I'd have called him a liar right to his face. So there you go. If you were going to categorize Ringo Starr as a drummer, which one would it be? A, a very talented instrumentalist whose abilities are and were underestimated. B, a not bad musician elevated by his good fortune in winding up in the Beatles. Or C, a pretty lame musician by comparison, not just to his bandmates, but to most of his contemporaries in successful rock bands? Yeah, that's a good question, right? Me personally, I'm going with A. I think he was a talented and is a talented instrumentalist whose abilities were and are underestimated. A lot of people say the same thing about Charlie Watts. Hmm. Underestimate him. Did Mick Jagger get good grades at the London School of Economics? What do you think? No. <laughs> I mean, well, what, what do you consider good grades, right? Okay. Although he probably could have, according to Walter Stern, Jagger's tutor at the LSE. Jagger started as a promising student in October 1961. He announced his intention of going into business, but was worried about mathematics. His former tutor remembered. But almost immediately, however, Jagger ran into Keith Richards and got distracted by blues music. He started cutting his classes and some of which started at the unrock hour of 10 a.m. And when he took his exams in June 1962, he got straight C's. <laughs> the subjects were just better than what I would have got at the School of Economics, London School of Economics. The subjects were economics, British government, economic history, political history, and English legal institutions. 
Nevertheless, he dutifully returned the following academic year, even working in the library, hedging his bets until the Rolling Stones had a contract to record their first single in May 1963, at which point he left school. Quote, my father was furious with me, Jagger said, but I really didn't like being at college. It wasn't like uh, it was Oxford, and it had been the most wonderful time of my life. It was really a dull, boring course I was stuck on. And then he wasn't stuck. And the rest is history. What the hell did Billy Joe McAllister throw off the Tallahassee Bridge? Another age-old question. More than 35 years after the release of Bobby Gentry's Ode to Billy Joe in 1967, questions linger about her haunting Southern Gothic ballad. And I suppose decades from now, will anyone still wonder who let the dogs out? Uh, okay. Uh, Gentry's number one single tells the story of a family dinner where the narrator finds out that her boyfriend, Billy Joe McAllister, has jumped off the Tallahatchie Bridge. The day before, people spotted her and Billy Joe throwing an unidentified object off that same bridge. Everybody has different guess about what was thrown off that bridge. Flowers, a ring, even a baby, Gentry said. Gentry stated, what was thrown off the bridge really isn't that important. The message of the song, if there must be a message, revolves around the nonchalant way the family talks about the suicide. The song is a study in unconscious cruelty, she said. Sinead O'Connor's 1995 cover version didn't shed much light on the song's mysteries, but the 1976 movie adaption owed to Billy Joe, with Robbie Benson in the title role, provided some answers. They seem like arbitrary inventions of the filmmakers, but they're the closest thing the song has to an official solution. In the movie, Billy Joe tosses his girlfriend Bobby Lee's rag doll off the bridge and then jumps the following day, tormented by uncertainty over his sexual identity. Now, there you go. Doesn't Pete Townsend hurt his hand when he does that windmill thing on the guitar? Well, yeah, even worse than you would think. During a 1989 Who concert in Seattle, Townsend missed the encore when he sliced open his hand on a guitar string and was rushed to the hospital. During another show that year, Townsend actually impaled his right palm on the guitar's whammy bar. Oh, Jesus. Plus, the, the guitar strings routinely get underneath his fingernails and rip them off. <laughs> Anything for show business. This means he starts to bleed, and of course, when the guitar picks get bloody, 
it becomes slippery and hard to hold. Right? Common sense. Townsend said in 1994, it's terribly painful, but he relishes it. He said, I think this is it. I've arrived. It is the place where I should be, like a boxer in the middle of a fight. Of course, before his painful hearing loss, he used to take the same pleasure in how physically punishing the Who's loud amplifiers were. There's clearly a masochistic element to his on-stage actions. I've never been able to make out the beginning of the second verse in Van Halen's Everybody Wants Some. And there's no lyric sheet. So what does he say? I tickle mobile line looking for a Mookie. <laughs> what does he say? To the best of David Lee Roth's recollection, he intended to sing, I've seen a lot of people just looking for a moonbeam. If you think what he recorded doesn't really sound like that, well, you're right. Because by his own admission, sometimes he'd forget the words in the studio and mush mouth it, approximating syllables. Sometimes it was attitude which revved up so hard that it just defies the lyrics, Roth said. There are certain things that shouldn't have too much meaning, like Saturday night. So his best, his best approximation of what came out of his mouth is, Sheep a lot of pepper daba looking for a moonbeam. You will never listen to that song the same again. Sheep a lot of papa daba looking for a moonbeam. <laughs> I, I like those lyrics better. I do. All right, let's play a game. Real names. Real names. I'm going to give you the real name, and you guess to yourself who the artist is. All right? So there we go. Stuart Goddard. Who is Stuart Goddard? Answer is Adam Ant. This one's pretty easy. Who is Francis Avalone? Francis Avalone. Frankie Avalon. Right. Who's Patricia Andrzejewski? Andrzejewski. Patricia Andrzejewski. The answer? Pat Benatar. <laughs> This one, I think this one's pretty easy. Who's John Bongiovi? Really? John Bongiovi. John Bon Jovi. Who's Ernest Evans? Ernest Evans. Well, if you've ever done the twist, you know who it is. Chubby Checkers. Who's Cheryl Sarkeesian? Do you know? Cheryl Sarkeesian. 
look no further than the first four letters of her first name. C-H-E-R. Cher. Cheryl Sarkeesian. Who's David Van Cortland? David Van Cortland. David Van Cortland is David Crosby. Who's Virginia Hensley? Virginia Hensley. Some of these are tough. Well, Virginia Hensley is Patsy Cline. If you got that, you're good. I'll give it to you. You're good. Who's Vincent Fernier? Vincent Fernier. Vincent Fernier is the one and only Alice Cooper. Or Fernier, however you say his name. Who's Declan McManus? Declan McManus. Well, Declan McManus is Elvis Costello. You know that couldn't have been his real name, right? Like Marilyn Manson, Elvis Costello. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Walden Casado. Who's Walden Casado? Again, if you get this, you're fucking good. <laughs> you are good. Walden Casado is Bobby Darren. Yeah. Who's John Duschendorf? John Duschendorf. Well, if you grew up in the 70s, you'd know. Well, you might know, but maybe you didn't know that John Duschendorf is none other than John Denver. Who's Otha McDaniel? Otha McDaniel. Othan McDaniel. Referenced in a uh, George Thorogood song. Doing that Bo Diddley beat. Yeah, Bo Diddley. Otha McDaniel. Who's Ellen Cohen? Ellen Cohen. Well, Ellen Cohen is none other than the late, great Mama Cass. Who's Dan Seals? Dan Seals. I think we mentioned him actually about three episodes ago. Dan Seals. Brother was in Seals and Croft. But Dan Seals is none other than England Dan. John Ford Coley. If you grew up in the 80s, you know this one. George O'Dowd. George O'Dowd, boy George. Right. Who's James Hendricks? 
James Hendricks. See, that one's easy. It's Jimi Hendrix, except his real name, he spells it H-E-N-D-R-I-C-K-S. Common spelling. Who's Charles Hawley? Charlie Hawley. Charles Hawley. Hey, good guess. Is Buddy Hawley, right? You're right. Who's William Broad? William Broad. Some of you might know this. Some of you might know this. William Broad is none other than the great Billy Idol. Who's Robert Smith? Which is interesting because there's actually musicians that have the name Robert Smith. Key one being the lead singer of The Cure. But in this case, that's not the name he uses as a stage name. Robert Smith, and again, some of you might know this. Robert Smith is the one and only Wolfman Jack. That was pretty good. That was a pretty good imitation. <laughs> I'm not going to try it again. I'll end up coughing. Everybody does when they try to do that voice. Who's Thomas Woodward? Thomas Woodward. Well, Thomas Woodward would be my Delilah. And I have to sing at least once a podcast. My Delilah. You got it, Tom Jones. Uh, <laughs> who's KC of the Sunshine Band? What's his, what is the KC? Who's KC? See, this is backwards. This one's backwards. Should be Harry Casey. They got the answer is the question. So the, 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 let me ask you. Okay, you didn't hear that. Who's Harry Casey? Somebody didn't proofread this. Harry Casey is KC of KC and the Sunshine Band. And who's Roberta Anderson? Roberta Anderson. Roberta Anderson. Roberta Anderson is the one and only. The great Joni Mitchell. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, we got that covered. Let's go to, uh, it's not going to be a two-hour show. I don't even know how long I've been going so far. Well, let's jump right into it. Let's get, let's get this. Let's start wrapping this up. This pot takes at least 15 minutes. <laughs> Let's do the top 10 this week in 1977. It was a good year. That was a good year for music. Number 10 this week in 1977. The Star Wars theme performed by, performed by, do you know? The London Symphony Orchestra. 
conducted by, we all know, John Williams. All right. Number nine this week in 1977. Smoke from a distant fire. Your eyes are lit like a smoke from a distant fire. I, you know, I know, I know the song. I don't, I don't even know if the beginning words were right, but <laughs> smoke from a distant fire was number nine this week in '77. Number eight this week in 1977. One of my favorite songs from this group. Telephone Line by ELO, which if you ever get to see Puddle's Pity Party in concert, he does a fantastic version of that. He has the phone set up, he has all the props, and the guy sings, he's the voice of an angel. So number eight this week in 77, Telephone Line by Electric Light Orchestra. Number seven, great song, great song. I just spoke on this some episodes ago. It came to uh, songs in movies or songs in movie scenes. Strawberry Letter 23 by the Brothers Johnson. What a great song that is. And speaking of who is Harry Casey. Number six this week in 1977 was Keep It Coming Love. By Casey and the Sunshine Band. Number five this week in 1977. I fucking hate this song. I fucking hate this song. This is an instant turn the channel song for me. Okay. The worst song they ever did. Don't Stop by Fleetwood Mac. I fucking hate that song. God, I hate that song. Did I tell you I hate that song? If I didn't, I fucking hate that song. Green Day might as well have sang that song. I fucking hate them too. Okay, back to the show. Number four this week in 1977. This is like an all-star lineup. Well, kind of. Number four this week in 1977, Handyman by James Taylor. Number three this week in 1977, Best of My Love. Oh, oh, you got the best of my love. Oh, oh. Yeah, that was a disco song. The Emotions. That was a dance club song. Hell yeah. I like my disco. I do. I still do. Number two. Such a great song. Such a great, great, like, unique, one-of-a-kind R&B song that just doesn't get its due. But it's a fucking great song. Float On by the Floaters. Float. Float on. Taurus. And my name's Larry. I like a woman with long legs. And can drink whiskey. And likes to get funky with me all night. Float. Float on. Float on. Float on. 
I'm having fun by myself. Fuck anybody else. Hi, my name is Harold. I'm Sagittarius, and I like a woman who's strong. Yeah, I could go on. It's You can mimic the song, but it's a great fucking song. Float, float on. I'm actually going to go listen to that after, after I'm done doing, recording this podcast. And number one, this week in 1977, I wish I had a drum roll. I don't have a drum roll. Eh, I have everything else. Anyways, number one this week in 1977, I Just Want to Be Your Everything by Andy Gibb. Yeah, Andy was the man back then. Yep. They had it. Top 10 in 1977 this week. All right, moving on. This day in music, 1968, was it was a busy day in 1968. <laughs> this was a it's kind of a busy day in 1968. Jeannie C. Riley went to number one on the US single chart with do you know? Jeannie C. Riley. She went to number one on the US singles chart with Hopper Valley PTA. She won a Grammy for Best Female Country Singer of 1968. A lot of people think Bobby Gentry sang that song. Yeah. A lot of people confuse that. But nope, it was Jeannie C. Riley. She gets her due. On that same day in 1968, Madame Tussauds Wax Works in London, Madame Tussauds, Madame Tussauds Wax Works, and London gave the Beatles their fifth image change of clothes and hair in four years. They were definitely trendy. <laughs> also on this day in 1968, the Jimi Hendrix Experience released their version of Bob Dylan's song, yep, you know it, all along the Watchtower. Hendrix had been given a tape of Dylan's recording by a publicist and Dave Mason from Traffic and the Rolling Stones' Brian Jones both played on that recording, which is widely known as the best version of that song. I would say it's probably 99.9% of the people that listen to that song and have heard Dylan's version prefer the Jimi Hendrix version. I think you agree. Also on this day in 1968, Deep Purple hit number four on the U.S. singles chart with their debut single. Do you know? Do you know what their debut single was? I'll give you a hint. It wasn't Smoke on the Water. It wasn't Highway Star. Nope. It was Hush. Yeah. Yep. They hit number four in the singles chart with Hush. Also a band in 1997 called uh, Cooler Shaker. They did a pretty good version of that also. 
More Jimi Hendrix. On this day in 1971, the first edition of the new BBC TV show, The Old Grey Whistle Test, was aired. Presented by Richard Williams. The show included film clips of Jimi Hendrix from the Monterey Festival playing Wild Thing, which is on the album The Jimi Hendrix Otis Redding Experience. Highly suggest you get that. Uh, They had a a video of Bob Dylan playing Maggie's Farm. Plus America and Leslie Duncan live in the studio. Oh, America played live there. The influential show went on to enjoy a run from 1971 to 1987. I do remember watching that late at night, coming home drunk, eating, I don't know, whatever. Kelly's roast beef, Beachmont roast beef, uh, a tuna fish sandwich. (laughs) I don't know. Remember watching that show. According to presenter Bob Harris, the program derived its name from a tin pan alley phrase from years before. When they got the first pressing of a record, they would play it to the people they called the old greys, who were doormen in gray suits. Doormen. The songs they could remember and whistle, having heard it just once or twice, had passed the old gray whistle test. And now you know. Now you know. On this day in 1974, Carl Douglas was at number one on the UK singles chart with Kung Fu Fighting. The song was recorded in 10 minutes. Gee, you don't say. <laughs> it had started out as a B-side and went on to sell over 10 million and made Douglas a one-hit wonder. That's for sure. That's a legendary one. That's in the one-hit wonder Hall of Fame, that one. On this day in 1977, Meatloaf released his second studio album, Bat Out of Hell. His first collaboration with composer Jim Steinman and producer Todd Rundgren, it is one of the best-selling albums of all time, having sold over 43 million copies worldwide. And it still sells over 200,000 copies a year today. The first single released from the album, you took the words right out of my mouth, actually failed to chart when it was first released. Imagine that. Let's see, jump back a couple years on this day in 1974. Barry White went to number one on the U.S. singles chart with... Baby, can't get enough of your love, baby. Oh, yeah. Oh, baby, baby, baby. Can't get enough of your love. I think I was singing it right. I don't know. I don't know. I know what I'm saying. (laughs) The singer's first and only U.S. solo chart topper. Uh. Jump ahead to 1985. On this day in 1985, with the help of heavy MTV exposure, Money for Nothing gave Dire Straits their first U.S. number one single. Yep. Money for Nothing. Great song. And it, well, you know, it got a lot of MTV exposure because, well, what do they say? What is Sting singing at the beginning? I want my MTV. 
On this day in 1981, Adam and the Ants were at number one on the UK singles chart with their second chart topper, Prince Charming. I was a big Adam and the Ants fan. Big Adam and the Ants fan. Then Malcolm McLaren fucked them up. Took over as manager. Had them fire Adam Ant. They brought in Llewellyn, Luella, whatever her name is, and formed Bow Wow Wow. And Adam Ant went on to solo success. They were good. They were good. They're uh, 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 Kings of the Wild Frontier, I think was their first album. That's a, that's a really heavy album. Heavier than you might think. Go listen to it. Kings of the Wild Frontier, Adam and the Ants. Like I said, a little heavier than you might think. On this day in 1980, I'm bouncing around here. Bob Marley, during a North American tour, collapsed while jogging in North America's Central Park. After hospital tests, he was diagnosed as having cancer. Marley played his last ever concert two nights later at the Stanley Theater in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. On this day in 1986, Michael Jackson featured, let me see, the National Enquirer magazine featured a picture of Michael, of Michael, what the fuck, here I go again. Let's start this again. On this day in 1986, the National Enquirer magazine featured a picture of Michael Jackson in an oxygen chamber with a story claiming that Jackson had a bizarre plan to live until he was 150 years old. Yeah, we know how that turned out. (laughs) Jump back a year. I'm all over the place today. On this day in 1985, Madonna scored her first UK number one album with Like a Virgin, 10 months after its release. I believe it also went to number one in the U.S., On this day in 1991, Status Quo put themselves in the Guinness Book of World Records by appearing in four venues in one day. Sheffield, Glasgow, Birmingham, and London, performing all four in a 12-hour period. Them roadies must have been out of their fucking minds. Woo! Cocaina! Got a little bit of cocaina! To put up them riggings. Yeah. On this day in 1992. Parlophone Records released Creep by Radiohead. As their debut single. The single didn't chart. But featured in the uh, majority of critics lists at the end of the year. And later appeared in the first album Pablo Honey. So the critics loved it. But you know how that goes. It's up to the fans. But eventually became their classic. On this day in 1996, this is interesting. The Fuji scored their second UK number one single with Ready or Not. The chorus in the song is based on Ready or Not, Here I Come, Can't Hide from Love by the Delphonics. Now, the Fuji's previous single, Killing Me Softly, was so successful that the track was deleted and no longer supplied to retailers whilst the track was still in the top 20, just to make way for the next single, Ready or Not. So they kind of pulled it from the shelves just to make room for Ready or Not. That's pretty crazy. 
That's pretty crazy. All right, let's jump to the birthdays. We're almost out of here. I'm almost out of here. On this day in 1934, born on this day in 1934, Leonard Cohen, Canadian singer, songwriter, musician, painter, poet, novelist, and Hallelujah is not a fucking Christmas song. I don't know where people call that a Christmas song. It ain't a Christmas. That's a that's a pretty fucking bizarre song, the lyrics. That is not a Christmas song because it has the word Hallelujah in it. They think it's a Christmas song. That is not a Christmas song. If you've never listened to the lyrics, listen to the lyrics. That ain't a Christmas song. All right, born in this day in 1943. David Hood. David Hood, American bassist, best known as part of the studio backing band known as the Muscle Shoals Rhythm Section of Alabama. He played with many artists, including Cat Stevens, Paul Simon, Bob Seger, Traffic, the Staple Singers, Frank Black, Odetta, John Hyatt, Etta James, and Willie Nelson. Born on this day in 1947, Don Felder, guitar vocals of the Eagles, of Eagles fame. Born on this day in 1967, country hottie. She's a country hottie. Faith Hill. Yeah, boy. And listen to her music. Just turn the volume down. But I watched. Faith Hill's a hottie. Still is a hottie today. Born on this day in 1972, the great Liam Gallagher. I don't think I have to tell you who he is. The great Liam Gallagher. And also born on this day in 1972, David Silveria, drummer from the American new metal band Corn. Just had a hiccup during that thing. Let me start that again. Drummer from, from the band Corn, who scored the 1998 U.S. number one album, Follow the Leader, phenomenal album. Probably my top three favorite groups. I've seen them like six, seven times. Did you know 12 of the band's official releases have peaked in the top 10 of the Billboard chart? But yet, they don't get the credit they deserve. And if you ever get to see Corn in concert, go. It is just intense. It's intense. And that's it. That's my pre-recorded version of this podcast. I don't know if I've ever did this before, if I've ever done this before. What's the, what's the proper phrasing there? I've never done this before. I never did this before. I don't know. I don't care. But all I know is thank you for listening. I can't say thank you for watching because, well, it's not live. But thanks for listening. If you like this, share it. I appreciate you guys listening and following, and, and I truly do. And if I am going to put this on YouTube, so if you like it, share it. Hit the subscribe button. Hit the notification bell. Leave a comment. I appreciate you. Uh, like I always say, you are the engine that drives this machine. Without you, well, right now, I am talking to myself, but I have you in my mind. And doing this show for you to quote my favorite artist, Morrissey, the pleasure, the privilege, 
is mine. And I will be back next week, probably live. All right, everybody. Thanks.